allowed them to be able to attack in a very, very efficient manner. <coughs> and uh, com computers around the world, here and there, are, are gone down. Uh, the biggest victim so far in the U.S. has been uh, FedEx. Uh, ironically, a 22-year-old uh, computer uh, researcher happened to see uh, information online of a domain that had not been bought. I guess uh, that domain had been created by these people, but they didn't want to buy it lest it could be traced to them. Anyway, he bought it, <coughs> and that particular domain was the kill switch for this computer virus. And uh, him activating it almost inadvertently uh, caused them not to be able to affect the United States as much as they wanted to, apparently. So, where this will go, who knows? I read one article that said that uh, four years ago, an insider who apparently has is in the know on some things had said that there would come a time on a Friday when a huge attack would be made and that by Monday the banks would be closed and uh, the financial system would collapse as a result because the banks don't operate the, uh, the credit cards don't operate people don't have money and commerce and business just stops and of course we know there is, is coming from God's word a financial crash. I hope you've been hearing me. I didn't put my mic under my chin. I guess maybe it's picking up. Uh, in any case, we'll have to wait and see whether... I mean, there's, there are hacks going on every day around the world. But uh, the size of this one is what is amazing. Uh, trains are stopping in Germany and uh, hospitals went down in Britain and all kinds of things of that nature. So, is it the one? I don't know. Uh, we'll wait and see. But we know it's coming, and we know it's probably going to come fairly soon. So, this could be the beginning of it. Who knows? We'll see very quickly uh, whether it's sufficiently contained, or maybe it's just the first wave and they have bigger things planned. Who knows? But they're asking for a ransom to have your computer unlocked after they lock it. And you've got to pay them by Bitcoin, which is untraceable instead of dollars. <clears throat> so they've thought it out pretty carefully. And uh, we shall see. Of course, I think you and I want these things to proceed because we know that the plan of God uh, will follow shortly. Uh, with the things he said he will do for us. So, uh, be aware, be alert. <clears throat> now, we've done a series of three on self-righteousness, and I don't think it would be uh, good to get away from this topic until we at least consider the Pharisees. Now, let's be very, very careful today uh, as we examine the Pharisees, it would be so easy to sit back and say, yeah, let's all condemn the Pharisees because uh, there's a great deal of condemnation in Scripture and from Christ Himself about the Pharisees. But it would be very dangerous for us to sit back and be accusative or condemnative of the Pharisees unless we consider 
again, Revelation 3. Now, the whole church has been spewed out, and there are those who are trying to reincarnate themselves as Herbert Armstrong uh, and recreate what was there. We've been over that many times, and that wasn't good enough because God spewed it out. And he did not like our temperature spiritually. And he said there in verse 17 of chapter 3, Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods, and don't have need of anything, I'm okay. And our self-assessment was that we were okay. Uh, We never thought we were perfect, and yet on the other hand, we felt we were in the good graces of God and that everything would work out, and we'd go to a place of safety and be protected, and everything would be hunky-dory. But he said, you didn't know. You did not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So our self-assessment was just the opposite of what God assessed us as. Now, look at those words we just read. And you will see, as we get into the Pharisees, that those are pretty much the same words Christ used to describe them. So if you think we can go through the Scriptures on the Pharisees and not hit you between the eyes, uh, you're still (laughs) self-blinded. You still can't see what you are. Because God called the end-time church just about little different words, but essentially the same as what he says about us here. So, if you don't want to examine yourself as a Pharisee, put yourself in there. When he talks about Pharisees, he's talking about you and me. Put yourself in that picture. If you can't do that, then uh, maybe you better not even listen to this sermon because he does say the same things about us he said about them. So we have some deep introspection to consider as we consider the literal physical Pharisees that Christ was talking to. We are in time ones. So let's get that clear before we go into this and realize this is talking about me. Now, let's go to Matthew 3. I'm going to stick primarily to the book of Matthew today. The other Gospels recount the same stories, but we don't have time to go through them all, and it would be a lot of repeating, so I'm going to stick here uh, with a couple of exceptions. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his message was that the kingdom of heaven as expressed through Christ, was almost upon them. He was Christ's cousin. He knew him probably quite well. Their mothers were close. And he had had a great deal of time probably spent with Christ, even though he was to prepare the way, and knew what Christ's attitudes and approach would be toward uh, people, And John the Baptist was given a great deal of information. So, he's the first one that jumps on the Pharisees. He went out baptizing. 
Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, Here they were. They showed up. He was baptizing people. He was teaching repentance. And the Pharisees saw no need for them to repent. So they, they were there basically as observers. Now, what did John the Baptist lead out with? He saw many of them come to the baptism. He said to them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, he knew Christ was going to pour out a lot of wrath on them. He also understood from having talked with Christ what Christ was about to do in terms of his ministry and in probably maybe even in terms of building the church. I don't know whether Christ let him in that much or not because the disciples didn't really understand what was coming until later. So maybe he limited what he said to John the Baptist. But John, either through talking to Christ or through his own understanding and assessment spiritually, had come to see that they were just like a pile of snakes. And not only just snakes, but vipers, uh, poison mouths, poison tongues. The capacity to kill with the tongue, with the mouth. Bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say to you that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. could put the same DNA in them that Abraham had. He has that kind of power. And he said, Now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I'll baptize you with water to repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the Spirit of God would come up on them, against them, actually, and they would go into fire of tribulation. They would go into the lake of fire if there is not ultimate repentance when they come up in the resurrection. That's a pretty strong statement to these guys who were religious leaders. They said, we're in the church, we're in the church. There is a scripture, I think, in is it Isaiah or Jeremiah, that talks about those who say, well, I'm in the church, I'm in the church. The church will take care of me. I forget exactly where it is, but we've gone over it many times. So we thought, we're in the church, we're in the church. And then Christ laid the boom on us and blew us apart and tells us that we're just like these Pharisees, that we need to bring forth fruits of repentance and not be like we have been. So Christ said the same thing to us that John the Baptist here said to the Pharisees. Now let's go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and pick it up here in verse 20. Let's, let's go back uh, to verse 18 where he says, Heaven and earth might pass, but not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So not just the major commandments, but the jots, the tittles, the, the small, less important, if you put it that way, uh, instruction. 
Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, the smallest things, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least by those who are, on, who are in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the whole law needs to be taught. But I say to you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, as they were, were unqualified to be in the kingdom of God. Now, they were very, very picky over every little law. Every little law had to be kept. And to that they added even more. They wanted to be so sure that they'd add to it, make it even stronger. The Jews do that to this day. They make you do things that aren't even in the Bible, that are designed to be even more righteous than the law itself. So they considered themselves righteous. They thought that they were doing good and that every blessing from heaven would come on them. But Christ told them, told his disciples, no. If you're like if you're as good as a Pharisee, you're as good as gone. <laughs> that isn't going to work. You got to do better than that. So, we were up to the level of righteousness in some respects of the Pharisees. And God says, I can't do this. Uh, I'm going to blow you out. I'm going to spit you out. And you better repent. We're not here to recreate worldwide. We're to repent. We're to do a lot better than, the, than we were there. <coughs> Alright, let's go to chapter 9. And uh, here in verse 10. Matthew 9, verse 10. It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, he had a house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, the first thing to notice here is that the publicans and sinners felt comfortable with Christ and his disciples. In other words, Christ and his disciples were not putting out any vibes of how righteous they were as compared to anyone else. Okay? These people would not have been comfortable to come had they been under condemnation by Christ and His disciples. So they were not setting themselves up and acting holy so that these people would be put off by that. We have to treat people in the world differently than we treat people in the church. Now, we'll talk about how we treat people in the church a little later. But we do not need to act religious. We do not need to go out and try to tell people they're wrong. It isn't our job to condemn their religion, to condemn them. Uh, if we run across people in the world, we just need to be friendly and warm and by our good example, set an example for them. We're not there to preach Christ. We're not there to interact religiously with the world. We're just there to set a good example. 
And any time we find people in the church who are out trying to convert people in the world, the world is not comfortable with them. And uh, I know one guy that he'll he'll go in and he'll sit down and buy somebody a cup of coffee and act real friendly, and then he'll start preaching to them and giving them literature. And he's been kicked out of no telling how many restaurants because he was bothering the the people who were customers. <laughs> Because he's gonna he's gonna get them all straightened out. No, Christ and his disciples were apparently pretty relaxed here, and in such a way that the sinners and the publicans could come and feel comfortable in their company. Now you have to be careful. You get around the world, you begin to act like the world. But he was in his house, and they came to him, so he was friendly with them, and so was his, his disciples. But they weren't trying to straighten them out. But they were publicans and sinners, so they needed straightened out, right? But that wasn't Christ's goal and purpose at that point. Anyway, the Pharisees saw it. They said to his disciples, Why do you and your master eat with publicans and sinners? Now, the Pharisees had assessed that these publicans and these people were sinners. And they condemned them as such. They looked down upon them. Now, do we begin to start to understand, at least a little, the mind and attitude of a Pharisee? A Pharisee is someone who looks down on others, makes judgments about them, and condemns them. They're the kind of person who accuses other people of sin. Christ makes it very plain that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So if you accuse the brethren of God's church of sin, you are a Pharisee. And you are a follower of Satan, the devil. Is there any clearer way of putting that? We in the church have a knack, it seems, of seeing the faults and problems of others and a, a very good capacity for being able to recite those sins to others. And we also seem to have a great gift for overlooking our own. That's why Christ used the, me, the, the beam and the moat comparison. Now, are we convinced already that we're just like the Pharisees? Because gossip and backbiting and evil imaginations and accusations were a great part of worldwide Church of God culture. They just were. Self-righteous, backbiting. You say, well, I'm just telling the truth. This is the truth about that person. That doesn't matter. That's God's servant. It's up to God to deal with that person and straighten them out in whatever way they need. It's not your job or mine to condemn them and accuse them. But we became very proficient at it. And so were the Pharisees.
Now, you may see what appears to be a sin with someone. What is your responsibility? To pray to the, for them. It's not to go tell everybody else that they have a sin. That's not your job. It's not your job. That's Satan's job. He looks at every one of us, and wherever he sees what he feels is sin, he takes it to God and accuses us. That's Satan's M.O. And if that's your M.O., then you're like Satan and the other Pharisees. And you worship you know not what. Now Christ hasn't really jumped all over the Pharisees yet at this point. But, uh, where was I here? Uh, Nine, about eleven... So, why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? We all know these people are sinners. And, of course, he should be eating with us because uh, we're not. Of course, then they would accuse him of sin, too. Because they were the only ones righteous around. So, anytime you start accusing someone else or putting them down, uh, you're, you're just on the wrong side of everything. Sorry. But we're still good at it. I mean, right here in this organization, this little group, we're still too good at it and have been over the whole time that we've been here. Maybe that's why there's only a few left, because the Phariseeism reigned supreme. But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go you and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Now the Pharisees were condemning these people, and they weren't ready to show any mercy. They were ready to sacrifice them. They were ready to point out all their sins and point out how they were ungodly and unrighteous. That's not the way to do. Christ said, I'm not even doing that. I'm here to show mercy. I'm not here to condemn all these people. You are. He says, you go and learn what that means. Get it? For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's telling them right there, he didn't come to call those who thought they were righteous, but those that admitted they were publicans and sinners. All right, let's go on down to chapter 9, verse 33. Christ had cast uh, a devil out, a demon, and that individual who could not speak began to speak. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. This is something new. This is exciting. We've had these people with demons throwing themselves in the fire and not being able to speak and speaking gibberish and, and uh, being violent and all that, and this man's casting them out. So the people, just common people around, looked to what Christ had done as a marvelous and wonderful thing. How did a Pharisee look at it? The Pharisee said, He cast out devils through the prince of the devils. The, the demons have 
power, and the leaders of the demons have even more power, so he's just using more powerful demons to cast out lesser demons. They weren't going to give any credit to God or to Christ, but saying he did it all but the power of demons. That's pretty accusative, isn't it? They condemned what Christ was doing. They condemned Christ. So you're going to see as we go through here that accusation of others is one of the key areas of definition of what a Pharisee is. Is being accusative and condemnative or negative toward others. Having a capacity to see the sin of others. Uh, let's go to chapter 12. Here, pick it up in verse 1. Uh, Emmanuel went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath. Now, in the eyes of the Pharisees, they were harvesting they were doing a harvest. And it was illegal to harvest or to do work on the Sabbath. Tell me, what's the difference really between picking something up that's in your refrigerator? Uh, I cut up some strawberries this morning. I clipped the top out and I, 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 I washed them. I turned the water on and I washed them. And, uh, and then I put them in a bowl and cut them up so they were smaller bites. And you know, in the time that it took me to do that, I could have easily pulled an ear of corn off of a stalk, peeled back the husk, and started eating the corn. I probably could have done it faster than I got those strawberries ready. Now, they weren't harvesting. They weren't working at a harvest. They weren't pulling all the ears off. They weren't stacking stacking it like you'd work at 8 or 10 or 12. They worked 12-hour days back then. Uh, hadn't been emancipated yet. Uh, they worked from 6 to 6. That was the work day. No, they were hungry, and they were on a Sabbath stroll, going from one spot to another, apparently. So they began to eat. And the Pharisees said, Oh, that's not lawful. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God, and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. David actually broke the law there. But Christ said, I would have mercy and not sacrifice. Now, what? who did it hurt that he ate that bread? Nobody. But they were hungry, and they didn't have anything else to eat. And David said, under the circumstances, I think the greater value here is to eat, even if we break a minor law. And Christ did not condemn David for that. In fact, Christ, as Melchizedek, forgave him for that. Have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? I'm actually working today. 
doing what I'm doing right now is work. It's work to prepare. It's work to do it. And you are tired and emotionally spent when it's over. (laughs) And back when I was going from church to church and had maybe 130 miles in between services, I had to get up early, give a sermon, talk to people, jump in the car, drive a good three hours, give another sermon, and then drive home. 260 miles of driving in that particular case, plus two sermons, and all that went along with it. And I'll tell you what, I was a young man then, and I was beat. Uh, Sunday, you just kind of looked at the wall with glazed eyes almost uh, after what you'd been through. It was work, hard work. But there was no condemnation because it was something that needed to be done for the sake of the people. Now, the priests back then were sacrificing animals on the Sabbath. And butchering is hard, hard work. It takes a lot of energy, time, to butcher animals. So they profaned the Sabbath, but they were blameless. It was not held to their account. But I say to you that in this place is one greater than the temple. He's telling him, I, I am greater than the temple. I made the temple. I, I'm the one that set up the rules. But if you had known what this means, if you had just known this, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Sometimes we get people who interpret the rules very, very strictly. They have to go into every detail of every doctrine and be sure every little detail is right, and in so doing become often accusative and condemnative of others, and they've forgotten that Christ would have mercy and not sacrifice. That the greater value is mercy. And yet we have been merciless with each other over the years and made all kinds of accusations and backbit and stabbed in the back and talked about people and how sinful and evil they are and what their sins are. We've made a practice of it. We've made almost a religion out of it. Well, I believe in mercy. Oh, yeah? No, when when you're stabbing people in the back... You're not showing mercy. You're not showing mercy at all. Your evil scenarios are not mercy. They are trying to find sin in others, trying to figure out how sinful people are and why they're sinful. So you think about them, and you look at them, and you watch them, and you try to figure out what their sins are. That is totally ungodly. I mean, some sins sometimes are fairly apparent. But when we're trying to find sin, trying to, dis, to figure out what people's sins are, we're clear over on the dark side. That is not godly. God is trying to find something to save in our hearts when He ponders our hearts. He's not trying to find something to condemn us for. That's easy for him. 
That's not what he's doing. He's trying to find something worth saving. <laughs> That's his attitude. Satan is trying to find something worth condemning and bringing it to Christ. Now, you don't take it directly to Christ, maybe, because you don't have access to his throne, but you take it to your neighbor. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Christ says, you, if you do it to your neighbor, you're doing it to me. These Pharisees condemned Christ right in public. You say, I would never do that. I'm not a Pharisee. No, Christ says the way you treat your brothers and neighbors in the church is exactly how you treat him, and that's how you're going to be judged. So what we do and what we say and what we think about fellow Christians, we will be held accountable for. Did you ever stop to think? I had somebody tell me that, the, that their job was to straighten me out. Uh, okay, what they're really saying there is, I need to figure out what your sins are, and I need to help you get past them. Okay, let's take that a step further. That person is taking on your sins or my sins and taking, taking that approach. You have your sins, and I'm here to straighten you out. Therefore, I am taking on your sins. You know, they may have to answer to Christ, not only for their sins, but mine too, if they have that attitude. <laughs> because if you take on somebody else's sins, then you have those sins, right? You better be very, very careful who you try to straighten out. Didn't Christ say, get the beam out of your own eye before you get the mote out of somebody else's? And I don't know anybody yet that's gotten the beam out of their own eye. We all still are sinful before God. And all our righteousness is as filthy rags. So, you might better get your own straightened out before you go against Scripture and think that one obscure Scripture says you're supposed to straighten somebody else out. That's not your job. All right, let's go on to, uh, let's see, we were in 12 here. Uh, let's go to verse 10. <clears throat> Behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? So they had decided that even healing was wrong on the Sabbath because you, you had to do something. And he said to them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to dwell on the Sabbath. So he uses some very simple instruction here to show them that they had the whole thing wrong. If they'd had one sheep, and that's what they might be depending on for something to eat someday, uh, you know, if a sheep in a pit could die there real easily. No food, no water, hot sun. Could die even in a day with a hot sun if it's caught out in it and can't get to water. So he's saying... You're being, trying to be so very, very careful about how you keep the Sabbath. But again, mercy is greater. And it is work. 
to pull an animal out of a bog, out of a mire, or out of a pit. That pit might have water and mud in it. And I've seen cows get out in a muddy hole trying to get to the water and sink up to their body in mud and die standing right there because they couldn't get to the water and couldn't get out. And it it takes a lot of work to get a cow stuck up to her body out of the water or out of mud. You about have to winch them out, pull them out with a horse, and you're in danger of killing the animal just getting it out of there. So he said, you do that, but if I say be healed or pick up your bed and walk, uh, oh boy, that's a sin. Can't do that. So he turns their picky, picky, nitpicking doctrine back on them. Anytime you see someone who's very, very nitpicky to the point they almost can't see the principle because they're so buried in detail, you know that there's Phariseeism involved there. Has to be. That's why Paul said, don't strive over words. Now, he knew what a Pharisee was. He had been one. So he says, if you strive over words, and you're so busy, busy, busy over Greek and Hebrew trying to figure out exactly what every little word and every nitpicky little thing is about and what it means, that's the way the Pharisees do it. We need to be very careful and understand that we need to get the principle that mercy is much greater than Greek words or Hebrew words and the nitpicky meaning or whichever synonym you like that fits your theory. No, let's get the picture. We were like Pharisees and are in the way we become accusative and trying to see what other people's sins are. You know, you can be very, very, very careful on the Sabbath. The Jews are to this day, so very, very careful. And yet, you can sit around in your living room not having turned on a light switch and badmouth somebody. You know? What do you got? Phariseeism plus. Chapter 12, verse 22. Then was brought to him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? Someone who can do miracles. See, they were accepting what Christ did at face value. They weren't trying to see the dark side or find a reason why he should not be doing this and how it was unrighteous. No, they, they just says, wow, this man must be the son of David to do that. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out de- devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. They immediately took the negative. See the contrast here between what Christ was and what the Pharisees were? And Emmanuel knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? Well, and Satan is divided against himself. The demons don't all agree with Satan, and they disagree with each other, and uh, their house will fall. 
So it says, If I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come to you. It's right here in front of you. How can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except the first bind, he first bind the strong man and then spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. So he says, this negative attitude you Pharisees have is ungodly, and you're not with me. Here these people see it and say, man, that must be something from God, because the fruit was good, wasn't it? But the Pharisees didn't see the good fruit. They says, this guy's got to be from the devil. If you have that kind of approach and attitude... And we did, didn't we? We were always willing to see the evil in someone else. But we have a great knack for overlooking our own. That's why Christ said there in Revelation 3, you're blind and miserable and naked, and you, you, don't, you can't see yourself for what you are. That's why I said, let's examine ourselves here in the light of what Christ says, as if we are a Pharisee. Because the same things were true spiritually of the church that were of them. Let's move on to chapter 15. Uh, beginning here in verse 1. Then, Emmanuel, uh, then came to Emmanuel the scribes and Pharisees, and said, Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. See, you, you had to wash your hands, because there's something in the Old Testament about washings. But they had misinterpreted it and taken it way beyond what was intended. But he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. That's the fifth commandment. But you say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It's a gift, by whatsoever you might be profited by me. Uh, they conned their own parents by telling them that what they were going to do for them was good when actually they were stealing what they had. Now that's a whole lot worse than whether you ate your whether you wash your hands before dinner or not. He says, He who honors not his father or his mother's, he shall be free. Thus you have made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. You, you by your own traditions, disgrace your father and mother, whether you wash your hands or not. So you're, you're kind of swallowing at a gnat, and, I mean... Uh, straining in a gnat and swallowing a camel. And then he calls them hypocrites, verse 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We better be careful and understand the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the faith, the hope, the patience, uh, long-suffering, and those things. <coughs> One of God's greatest characteristics is mercy. Mercy. 
And one of the greatest, strongest characteristics of human nature is mercilessness. Not forgiving. Always remembering. You know, people will continue to bring up three years later, five years later, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years later, what they heard you did or knew you did or saw you did. <laughs> Whatever. They can't forget it. They can't move on. They've got you pigeonholed. They know they've found all your feathers and they know that they're not good feathers. So they've got you in a pigeonhole with bad feathers and that's where you're going to stay. Because every time something comes up, they'll go over the same old stuff over and over and over again. Mankind does not like to forgive. They like to remember. And they like to rehearse and repeat. Somebody comes in the church and maybe they start getting close to an individual. And somebody will take it upon themselves to go to them and tell them, now, you need to stay away from that individual because he's this, 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 and that. And you don't want to be involved there, so you better pay attention here. Well, that gives somebody a lot of hope, doesn't it? In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, what they decide they think ought to be done. And the Pharisees were good at taking it way beyond what Christ intended and getting hung out on picky little issues that missed the point. So he said to the multitudes, Hear and understand, not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Whether you get dirt in your food or not really is immaterial. It's what comes out your mouth that's the problem. Then came his disciples and said, Know you that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Did you know you offended them? He answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Now, Christ, God had not planted the Pharisees. <laughs> they raised themselves up above what God had intended. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall in the ditch. And Peter said, explain this parable to us. He said, are you also without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatsoever enters in at the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out the bowels? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Now, if we in the church saw people doing most of these things that are mentioned here in verse 19, we would be so very, very quick to condemn and put them down. What's the first thing that's mentioned here? Evil thoughts. That's the first thing he mentions. Evil thoughts. Having evil thoughts about other people. Finding their sins. Trying to figure their sins out. He puts, it, he puts us having evil thoughts about each other on the same level as murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and blasphemy. How righteous really are we when we accuse others of sin? when we are negative about them, when we talk behind their back. It's as evil as you can get. 
It's on the same par with all of those things that you're accusing those people of doing. Same level. You won't be in the kingdom of God if you have evil thoughts about others and accusations against others. Satan is not going to be in the kingdom of God. And you are a disciple of Satan when you do that. Now, is he talking to us or not? One of the greatest characteristics of the church, again, was to find evil in other members. And still is. <coughs> These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile you. Body set, set up to take care of some germs. It can handle it. <coughs> but nobody can, nobody can handle the garbage that comes out our mouths. <coughs> it comes from the heart. Now let's go to chapter 16, verse 1. <coughs> the Pharisees came with other Sadducees. And they wanted a sign that he was from heaven. He says, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and there shall be no sign given but the sign of Jonas. He'd be in the grave three days and three nights. In other words... Some things are pretty obvious, and other things you completely miss. How could we condemn fornication and adultery and thieving and lying and all those things and not categorize it the same as accusation? Whether the accusation be true or false, it's evil thoughts about others. Same category. How did we miss that? How did we indulge in it? Daily. How did we do that? Because we can't see the principle. We can't see the signs. We can't understand ourselves. It doesn't make any difference whether somebody's sins are alleged or, or true. Spreading negativity about them is something that God considers blasphemy. He says it's something he cannot stand. How did we justify it? Why do we still do it? We're just not getting the picture. That's what Christ said there in Revelation 3. You're not getting the picture. You might as well say those things about me if you're going to say them about each other. When the disciples came to the other side of the lake and they forgot to take bread... Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. They reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we've taken no bread. But when he perceived, he said to them, You of little faith, why reason you among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand yet or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I spoke not concerning bread, but that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think it's interesting. There's a man who's written dozens, if not hundreds, of pages about leavening and trying to figure out all the minute little details about it. 
What good does that do? If you have evil imaginations and accusations and talk negative about people. Why did Christ use the leavening of the Pharisees? Their doctrine. Because it was so nitpicky that it missed the whole point. So he used that as one of the guides of how he tried to teach his disciples to think rather than being accusative like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leavening in bread is not near as big an issue as a Pharisaical attitude. Not anywhere near. Not anywhere close. So don't try to make a big issue out of something that is not as big an issue as you make it. Those are the words of Christ himself about that subject. All right, let's go to chapter 19. <clears throat> this plot is going to thicken as we go. Chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came tempting him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause? Whatever reason he wants to put his wife away. And they're quoting that from Deuteronomy 24, when it said, where it said that if a man put away his wife, that was okay. He didn't even really need good cause. He just didn't want her anymore for any reason. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he says, I'm going to go beyond Deuteronomy 24. Because they were using that to get rid of their wives whenever they wanted to. That was their doctrine. That was their way. And it did come from the Bible. But he said, <clears throat> let's, let's consider this. From the beginning, God made the male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh, one man, one woman. Wherefore they are no more two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They say to him, Why did Moses then command giving a writing of divorcement to put her away? That's Deuteronomy 24. And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. How many times did Herbert Armstrong start studying a topic and he'd go right back to Genesis? Let's go back to the beginning. <clears throat> Christ is saying that. Whatever I allowed and Moses allowed was because of the hardness of your hearts, but that isn't the way it was intended from the very beginning. God intended one man, one wife, for life. That's the way he set it up. So he says, marriage is of God. Uh, hum uh, homosexuals cannot get married. Because marriage is a divine institution. And God made male and female to marry and become one, not male and male or female and female. And that's why he didn't start polygamy. He didn't make uh, Adam six wives. In the beginning, one man, one woman. That's the way God set it up. That's what God intended. That's what God still intends. <clears throat> so they said, why did Moses give a writing saying you could divorce? Because 
of the hardness of your hearts. And I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoso marries her which is put away, does commit adultery. And adultery is uh, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, break it, and you can miss out on eternal life. Now, Herbert Armstrong misunderstood fornication. He thought it was just premarital sex. But uh, by example, in the Bible, in Revelation, Jezebel was a married woman, and she committed fornication. Uh, the word simply means sexual fraud or sexual perversion or some misuse of sex. Uh, and those are grounds for divorce and remarriage. <clears throat> but it has to be those categories, uh, something where some kind of fraud or disobedience is being perpetrated. Christ put away Israel, and he's the perfect example for her whoredoms after marriage. So there's another example uh, where Christ in all Righteousness was able to put away Israel. And he is going to remarry in the kingdom of God. So his own example shows that if somebody is committing adultery, you have every right to put them away because they've broken that contract that is made. His disciples say to him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, <laughs> it's just better not to get married. If you can't dump the broad whenever you want to, uh, you know, uh, don't marry. Now, I'm being a little crude and crass there, but that's the way they were thinking. <clears throat> he said to them, all men can't receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. You know, some can and some can't. There's some eunuchs that were made that way, and some from birth, and so on. So, you know, this is, this is the way it is. Either take it or leave it. You're supposed to marry one and stay with them, except and unless there is sin involved uh, that is the kind that allows you to put them away and righteously to do so. So that's the exception he made in the New Testament. So, polygamy is wrong. And putting away your wife for any excuse is wrong. I've been accused of wanting to be polygamous. No. I don't want two or three or four or five wives. Uh, and even if it's a human being you did, then you've got to live with three or four or five wives. And uh, that can be difficult too. And with 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 kids. And it doesn't work out well. Look at... God allowed it in the Old Testament... But look at all the jealousy between the women and the jealousy between the children and the problems with inheritance and on and on it went. It was a nightmare. God's not for it, and I'm not either, no matter what the popular thinking is. All right, let's go to chapter 21, verse 23. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching. So, uh, here are the leaders, the Pharisees, the ones in charge, and said, By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? 
And Emmanuel answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it? Where did it come from? From heaven or of men? And John the Baptist was out baptizing, and uh, Christ says, where did he get his authority? Did you give it to him? No. Did he come from heaven? Where did, where did John get the authority to do that? He was doing it. And they reasoned within themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? <laughs> and if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. So we, we can't endorse him, uh, or we'll be in competition with him. So they answered and said, We cannot tell. And he said to them, Neither tell you I by what authority I do these things. I don't have to explain. His authority came from his Father in heaven. But the Pharisees will question authority. That's one thing they do. Not their own. Because we, the people, are holy also. And we can, what we say is just as important as what the minister says. So these people questioned Christ. They thought their authority was higher than his because they were kin to Abraham and Moses. Well, if they were Jews, they weren't kin to uh, to Moses. He was a Levite. Anyway, we better be very, very careful how we look to authority that God has set up because we might be found to be fighting against God. So they couldn't tell. And the man, he says, a certain man had two sons. He told him to go work in the vineyard. And he said, I'll, I won't do it. Came to the second, told him to go work in the vineyard. And he said, I will. And the one that said he wouldn't did, and the one that said he would didn't. Uh, which of those two did the will of his father? They say the first. Emmanuel said to them, Truly I say to you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. The publicans and harlots will be able to see their sin. They'll be able to repent of their sin. But you people are so self-righteous you can't see your sin and therefore you can't repent. That's what's the trouble with the whole church of God right now. He said we'd be blind to our sin. <laughs> and self-righteousness is what our sin is. It's our biggest sin. We can see other sins, but not our own. What's Satan? He's self-righteous. He's not going to admit and see and understand how his rebellion against God was a sin. He's not going to repent of that. He, can't, he cannot analyze himself properly. And God said, we can't analyze ourselves properly. We haven't been. We, we got it all backward. So he says, publicans and harlots will go there before you do. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. And they went down and repented and got baptized. And when you had seen it, repented not afterward, that you might believe him. So he says, didn't do any good to tell you the truth. You won't listen. 
How quick are we to defend ourselves when somebody points out what could be possibly an error on our part? Very, very quick, aren't we? That's our self-righteousness coming out. It's just natural as anything that comes. Here another parable. There's a certain householder who planted a vineyard and hedged it about and digged a wine press and fixed it where it could be protected. But it was time for the harvest, and he sent workers out that they might pick it, harvest it. But they took his servants, beat one, killed another, stoned another. So he sent more servants, and they did the same thing to them. And then he finally sent his son, saying, Surely they'll reverence my son. <clears throat> Christ sent prophets. Christ sent judges. And they condemned them and killed them. And he finally sent his own son. And surely they'll listen to him and say, This is the heir. But... Let's kill him, they said, and let's seize on his inheritance. And they cast him out and slew him. So the Lord came to the vineyard. What is he going to do to these husbandmen? Well, he'll miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Emmanuel said to them, Did you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. And is it marvelous in our eyes? Therefore say I to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof, of repentance and fruits of the kingdom. Whosoever shall fall on this stone, speaking of himself, shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. They wanted to kill him, but they were afraid the multitude would kill them. They had murder, anger, hatred in their heart. And that is a sin just as much as killing someone is. If you have hatred and anger and bitterness and animosity towards someone, that is the spirit of murder. That's the spirit of murder. And there's a lot of that in the church of God. Hatred, bitterness, anger, and animosity. There are people who gave themselves over to that and wrote books about Herbert Armstrong and his sins. They, de they delved into his life as far back as they could go and tried to figure out from any witnesses or anybody that knew him way back then they tried to find out all his sins as a young man. <laughs> now, what are you doing? You're delving into and trying to find sin and trying to find something to accuse somebody of. That is as ungodly as it gets. But that's what they did to him. They had to find out his sins. Well, when we're baptized and God washes away our sins... What's there to look for? As I've said before, why do we dig around at the stake in Christ's blood trying to find other people's sins? Why do we indulge in that? It's the spirit of murder. It's the spirit of killing Christ and saying His sacrifice is not big enough for that man's sins. That man, that woman, 
is not forgiven. Christ's blood is not big enough for them. You know what you're doing when you're judging Christ's blood not to be big enough to forgive your neighbor, your brother's sin? You're committing idolatry. You're saying your judgment of that person is more important than God's judgment. Because you're condemning and Christ is forgiving. And He will have mercy and not sacrifice. We have no right to be negative or accusative or condemnative toward anyone. We just don't have that right. And we certainly don't have a right to repeat it. That's what Satan does. It's what the Pharisees did. Are you a Pharisee or not? Do you find and repeat people's sins? Are you ready for the latest gossip about them? I think he called it right there in Revelation 3. What time is it getting to be? Uh, chapter 22, verse 15, uh, he shut them up. They were making accusations that weren't right. I'm not going to go read that one. Same thing in chapter 22, 34. But I want to go to chapter 23. Because here he unloads. <laughs> He's been dealing with them. They've been accusative of others, and they've been accusative of him all along. That is one of the primary definitions of a Pharisee is being an accuser. True witness, fault witness. Doesn't matter. Then spoke Emmanuel to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They have gone down by line uh, in, the, in the priesthood all these generations all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. Uh, you, if they're teaching the law, you're supposed to keep the law. But do not you after their works, for they say and do not. They're hypocrites. Do we say and do not? How many scriptures, how many sermons in Worldwide Church of God over 70 years and now 100 years nearly... How many sermons were given about backbiting and gossip and put-downs? Thousands and thousands and thousands. And yet it didn't seem to slow us down a bit. We're able to go ahead and gossip and backbite and find other people's sins. Just couldn't get over it, could we? So God blew us apart to make us think about it and to realize that we're blind and naked. And that's one of the biggest sins that there was in the church. Sin of self-righteousness, and I'm more righteous than you, as evidenced by the fact that I am capable of finding and repeating your sins to others. That is self-righteousness. It is idolatry taking God's place. God is the judge of us all. We are not each other's judge. But boy, we try to be. That is idolatry. Anyway, uh, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They'll tell you all these nitpicky things you have to do and exactly how you have to go about it but they won't lift the 
finger to do what they need to do themselves. And self-righteousness was what they needed to get over. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. They have big white sleeves so that they could write their good deeds on them, so people could read all the good things they'd done. We may not take it to quite that extent, but we still like to let people know about how we serve and how we give and what we did for so-and-so, and, and uh, we'll refer to it by example, whether we write it on our sleeves or not. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. There was a great competition in the church to see who could be a deacon or an elder or an elder's wife or a deacon's wife or a deaconess, which isn't really in the Bible, or a prophetess, which is, or whatever. But we, all, we had this competition, this gamesmanship going on to see who could get the high positions. That was, that was huge in the church. Oh, well, that's pharisaical, right? <laughs> that's what he says. Bragging about office. And they do greetings in the market to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be you not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all you are brethren. Don't try to set yourselves above each other. But that's what we do when we talk down about somebody else. We're setting ourselves above them, saying we have the capacity to judge what they do. Neither be called master, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and not brag about it. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. God will be the one who decides whether to exalt or to put someone down. It's not our job to do that. <coughs> Unless commissioned by God in the ministry to ordain deacons and elders and so on. That is the time where God uses that. But see, that comes from God. It isn't something you set yourself up in, but God has set up a system whereby that is done. And you cannot make yourself into a minister, or an elder, or a deacon. It has to come through those whom God has ordained for that purpose. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer you them that are entering to go in. You're so picky, and putting people down, and condemning them, that... You're not going into the kingdom, and neither are they if they listen to you. Woe to you, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. So while they were talking about how righteous they were, and showing off their good deeds and, and their money, <coughs> they were stealing widows' houses. I've been accused of that too, but I haven't done it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. They, Pharisees were not lazy. They would go across land and sea to convert somebody to their philosophy. And Worldwide Church of God was zealous and busy. We were busy trying to do a worldwide work. But we weren't doing it in righteousness. 
We were doing it in self-righteousness. So he says, Woe to you, you blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor or a sinner. You fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? It's the, the temple's what's important. You can make anything out of gold, but the temple is what is holy, not the gold. Whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whoso swears by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. <clears throat> you fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? The altar of God. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, swears by it and by all things thereon. The things that are on it, the gifts that were placed there, uh, are on the altar, which is what is important. And whoso shall swear by the temple swears by it and by him that dwells therein. He that shall swear by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him that sits thereon. You can pick whatever you want to swear by. And it's getting higher and higher here. A lot of people swear by God today. So he says, you're making yourselves holy. You're trying to be holy without doing the things that make you holy. And... Uh, and claiming that you're great because you're near the altar or you're near the temple or you're near to God. <clears throat> but that doesn't make you holy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weighty matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. We're to tithe and we are to give 10%, but... Do you count every grain to be sure that you get exactly one out of ten to give to God? Are you so picky? Can, couldn't you go by the shovel full? Couldn't you go by the truckload? Nine out of ten? But no, you've got to count it all out. We can get so technical-minded that we miss the point. Instead of showing mercy on others, and good judgment and proper judgment, we will condemn and make judgments of bad about people. We will be unmerciful and hold whatever thing we think we have against them against them. Those are the big matters of the law, and yet we'll get so picky about some little point that we think we have to get just right and spend days and weeks and hours studying it all out to be sure that we get the exact right Hebrew or Greek. It is a sin to strive over words. Paul said, don't do it. And yet some do. Let's learn judgment and mercy and faith in God for ourselves and others. That's far more important than whether you got exactly one out of ten grains of wheat. You blind guides which strain it in that and swallow a camel. You're so busy trying to hit one little gnat and be sure you get that one little thing straightened out that you, you're eating a camel tail first. You're letting the big things like judgment and mercy, go away. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Didn't we spend a lot of time trying to impress the minister and impress each other about how Christian we were? Wasn't that our M.O.? You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. We did that. We had a form of godliness. We were there. We were condemning other sins, but we were permitting our own, our own evil thoughts, our own evil imaginations, our own sins. We weren't getting rid of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, come to church, and everybody dresses up and looks fine and says the right things but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. If you don't see the sin and uncleanness in your thoughts and your actions, then you're still blind and naked. But we're so busy trying to figure out other people's sins. Wrong. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets uh, and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Oh, we're more righteous than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all those people. uh, And we're more righteous than the ones that killed them. We wouldn't have done that to them. Who were they about to kill? Who were they trying to kill? They were trying to kill Christ. Every time they got a chance, they tried to kill him. Then they finally got the job done. So they were full of hate and anger. They didn't want to be exposed for what they really were. Liars and thieves and fraudsters don't want to be exposed. Verse 30, and say, if we had been in the days... Oh, unless we read that. Wherefore, verse 31, you be witnesses to yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. So you've already said you wouldn't, you're wouldn't. you their children and you wouldn't have done what they did. Well, yes, you would. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell fire? That's pretty strong words. And when he tells us that we need to repent and go to him and get gold tried in the fire, same thing he's saying to them. You're going to go into the lake of fire if you don't straighten up. That's what he's telling us there in Revelation 3. (coughs) Wherefore, there's 34, Behold, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify. They did the disciples. (coughs) And some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. You'll put down the ones that I send, he said. You'll even kill them. (coughs) We do it with our tongues, not with swords or bullets for the most part. (coughs) And upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. He says, I'm going to hold the... Since you're kin to these people and you say you are... I'm going to hold what they did against you too. <coughs> because you're the same. Now every man answers for his own sin, but what he's trying to tell them is, you're no different. You're just like they were. So that sin is going to come on you too. 
Truly I say to you, all these things shall come on this generation. You that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers the chickens under her wings? And you would not. So he says, I'm going to leave your house desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Eternal. He sent out disciples, apostles, in his name, and they had to accept them or else. And they haven't yet. Their, their children are still there today with the same pharisaical stuff that was being produced back then, and even more so now. It's already 2.30. I'm not done with this. So let's just quit.